0: show all about people's personal journeys to Bitcoin. In this episode I speak with El Sultan Bitcoin whose amazing story as a Venezuelan couldn't highlight better the importance of Bitcoin. We chat about everyday life during hyperinflation, the history of Venezuela and the future of Bitcoin education. Listen on to learn how his father's business gave him an initial insight into the FX market, why Bitcoin volatility is actually lower than the Bolivar and how different the network topology of Bitcoin is versus Ethereum. This was yet another great story, with a graphic first-hand account detailing the insidious nature of inflation, an experience which only serves to highlight the importance of a neutral monetary network like Bitcoin. El Sultan, once again, thank you so much for your time. Absolute legend. Really enjoyed getting to know you better. Let me know if I can ever help out. Now I'd like to take a quick moment to mention my sponsor, FastBitcoins.com. They're a Bitcoin-only exchange based in the Isle of Man on a really exciting journey. If you'd like to learn more about them, I encourage you to search back through my episode library and listen to a couple of key conversations. Firstly, Danny Brewster, the founder CEO, and secondly, Nathan Smith, the chief compliance officer. Both stories give an excellent insight into the people building the business. In the coming weeks, you can expect a custom referral link, which you can also use on sign up to get the best possible rates. We haven't quite put the finishing touches on it, so please keep your eyes peeled. Now, on with the show hello and welcome back to bitcoin with jake i'm speaking with el sultan bitcoin welcome sir
1: hey jake thanks for having me
0: no total pleasure and thank you for, for taking the time to join me so This is a Bitcoin podcast. We can talk as much about Bitcoin as you want, or as little, in fact. But um, what i love to start with is people's, well, the whole thing is about people's journeys to Bitcoin. But um, at some stage, you read about it, or someone told you about it, or you came across it. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how you first came across Bitcoin.
1: How I found about Bitcoin was, I was in high school. I was browsing through the internet with one of my best friends at the time at his house. Um, It was sort of this first interesting thing to us, like this magical internet coin or whatever. Um, But I had to dug deep. uh, Yeah, I had had dug deeper, I think, for about a year. This was, we're talking about uh, late 2012 until late 2013, um, which is when essentially my best friend and I. Uh, co-founded the biggest uh bitcoin mining farm at its time uh back in venezuela uh this is this is of course uh caracas the capital uh so that's how i found bitcoin
0: whoa boom straight in nice okay <laughs> and so a lot of people will say oh i heard about it in 2011 2012 and for my case in the uk it'd be like someone was you know buying drugs online and then you know they ignored it basically but to jump straight into starting a Bitcoin mine, like whoa, that's like you went whole wholeheartedly into that. Um, perhaps that was because of living in Caracas and understanding that this was a tool that you could use that you actually really, really needed. Um, what was what was life like growing up in Venezuela and um why did Bitcoin appeal to you so immediately? That's that's a really interesting point.
1: Bang on. So I do think there's um a combination of major, uh, major trends that were happening back in the day, uh, that prompted prompted me and a group of friends at high school, uh, to to dive deep into Bitcoin. Basically, um, I think number one was, uh, for sure, cheap electricity in Venezuela, uh, and the whole deal that uh, part of the subsidy packages that the Venezuelan government was handing over uh, to people in the country was through. Essentially, subsidize electricity rates. Um, so, uh, this friends of mine family had like an old factory they were you know, using, so we were able to hook up, up for about two hundred end miners uh, S one bitmin end end miners at the time, and pay literally almost nothing uh, for, for the energy
0: or for, for the mining
1: for the, en- for the energ- for the yeah, energy for the wow. Uh, To power up the the equipment. And um, that's how we became one of the first market makers in uh, local Bitcoins at the time, um, which we'll dive into later. Um, But that's, I'd say, the major reason. The the other overarching reason, as as you mentioned, was for sure we're talking about Venezuela and this. um, I've always lived... Uh, I think I think I all all of my life I saw double digit inflation in the country. Um, we st- we still hadn't hit um, hyperinflation back then, but it was still already in place this countercurrency exchange programs um essentially that you had to go through the government um and do like a f- sort of formal request to access dollars. Mm. Um, so so that. So that's why any alternative uh, that, that you had to essentially um, make yourself uh, um, a way to find dollars or for you, either for you or your family or friends, whatever, uh, it was so valuable. So you always had to resort to some sort of uh, alternative that was not linked to the government to access enough dollar um, liquidity, depending on your needs. Mm-hmm. uh So that's why we that's why we saw a big interest um, in Bitcoin mining. It was essentially a way for us to almost for free after you purchase the mining equipment, uh, generate a revenue in dollar in dollar terms and had an enough liquid market uh, against the local currency uh, to exchange those Bitcoins for uh, whatever for Bolívar is essentially and. And pay whatever expenses we needed to pay.
0: Wow! And so, when you have double-digit inflation, so you're at high school, so you're about what eighteen at the time, sixteen or something, crazy young. Yeah, that's so cool. And yeah, like, so what does that mean? So every year, or every month, or every day, like inflation is a funny statistic, isn't it? It's, it's the the rise of prices is say ten percent, and if it drops to nine, doesn't mean that inflation. Has stopped it's still going up at nine percent at the time if that makes sense so double digit inflation you're you're i mean you're talking 50 percent or 25 what i mean teach me about what the actual economic conditions were like and what does that mean so what your food is becoming more expensive every day your um your schooling and education your health care all of these things that you have to buy from a practical perspective to survive but what you get paid is not catching up, like wages. I assume weren't growing at double digits every year. Is that right?
1: That that is absolutely right. Um, I think to give you a perspective, just like mm. a a real life example. Um, when I was in high school, I would I would buy I would buy like uh, these things we call empanada uh, in Venezuela. It would cost me about five thousand thousand bolívares at the time. Um, but then uh, the currency went through a re-denomination. And so, after that redenomination process, after a year, that same empanada will cost me five thousand bolivares of the old one. That would equal five of the new uh, re-denominated currency. I would I would need twenty bolivares of the new um, wow. of the new bills. So essentially, there you go. You have like a four hundred percent, yeah, forex increase there. <laughs> um, so 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 it's wild, and we're still not talking about. Um, hyperinflation. Um, I I think that at the time, it was not that bad, and that even I could ask for whatever, a friend at high school, like, hey, can I borrow 20 bolivers from you to buy lunch? Mm. And it would be okay. I think that today, that would be for sure (laughs) absolutely an insane thing to ask. Um, um, Back then, the currency, if it makes sense, was still worth something, mm-hmm. and that it was it was still not a ch- a shock uh, in people's finance enough for them to start thinking. Oh, of uh, well, I need a I need to start thinking about d- uh, things in dollar terms, which is what happens today in Venezuela. Ninety percent, wow. essentially, after the whole destruction process through inflation high inflation and eventually hyperinflation of the currency uh what you do is just force society to find an alternative mm. um at an ever increasing rate right wow uh to the point that today 90% of all transactions done to merchants in the country are done with dollars
0: really um, so that's that's a a um, a, a form of natural selection, in a sense, but so the average Venezuelan is now doing all of their day-to-day transactions in dollars, ninety percent. That's exactly right. Wow, God, that's a huge statistic, isn't it? And and so, what is like? Why has that happened? So, like, what's mm-hmm. the history behind this? And and how did <clears throat> how did your country where you grew up end up in such a situation?
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, Venezuela has always been a volatile economy after oil was found in a, in the early 1900s in the country uh, by Americans. I think that it's always been a deal of uh, the government trying to uh, have a bigger share of the revenues that the country uh, essentially cashed through selling oil. Um, the other trend was for sure the problem of uh, creating a, a, a monopoly around oil, and Mm -hmm. now the government fully controlling all of the revenues um, for the oil that Venezuela sells. Uh, Third is for sure the dependency that we created uh, on a single commodity. So, Mm -hmm. Venezuela used to be, before we discovered oil, the country, one of the countries that would export most cocoa or coffee back in the day. Mm -hmm. So, pretty agricultural-based. But today, 90% of all the country's revenues Are oil based, okay? Um, So that essentially created, uh, introduced that volatility aspect into our economy, which is like through this uh, boom and bust cycles that oil has has been through in the past, and and the boom periods, Venezuela, amazing, uh, but then if the government if the government uh, didn't disperse or whatever, malinvested all of those inflows. Then you lost all of it, mm. um, and and how and how uh, governments in the past managed to, uh, I think, successfully pass on uh, those good periods of time of of welfare to society was through new regulation, and most of the time was through new banking regulations. Uh, so, like creating the first uh, 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 bank. A national bank to issue mortgages to a bunch of people. That's how we went through the housing boom cycle Mm. in Venezuela back in the sixties, and that's just one example, right? Um, But but I think that uh, mm, uh, more related to uh, you know I think twenty seventeen, which is when high inflation started happening, and eventually that first year became. Venezuela's first year of hyperinflation, um, there's a combination of factors that went into place there. So one of them being for sure uh, sanctions from the U.S. The moment the moment that uh, the U.S. regime sanctioned, well, U.S. policymakers, whatever, the U.S. Treasury, you know,
0: Regime uh, sanctioned.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what
0: it is. <laughs> the yeah.
1: yeah. So they, they did not sanction uh, the country. So like Iran, for example, but they did sanction uh, a couple of individuals from the Venezuelan regime and the national state oil company. So wow. you can't sell any longer. Yeah. You can't sell any longer oil to the US. You can't sell any longer oil to Europe. Uh, you don't have access to dollars anywhere in the banking system globally. Wow. Uh, you pretty much don't have access to euros. So uh, you're, you're essentially barefooted and if you don't have access to Swift. So what do you do when you don't have access to, I don't know, uh, revenues and your main revenues that were based in foreign yeah. currency? You will have to try to find an alternative. Okay. Um,
0: so they started printing and, and
1: pre- Yeah. So they started printing money and they started assessing even more the usage of, Cryptocurrencies mm. uh, for themselves and for the for the Venezuelan economy just just to be of assistance. Um, so wow. that's so that's that's specifically t- the time and and the factor that made the Venezuelan government start introducing up just hordes of cash in U.S. dollars and uh, euro banknotes coming from from loans taken from Russia. Um, and loans that we took from the Chinese government as well, that we pay them back in in commodities. We pay them back in yeah. in oil or 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 gold or whatever. Yeah. Um. But that's that's I believe um, the group of of main factors that uh, I think went into fueling that um, printing process that made us go all the way from high inflation directly into hyperinflation that same year.
0: Wow. Um, and, and I mean, thank you for explaining all of that. The, the thing that makes me wonder is, so what was life like in Venezuela when this happened? I mean, um, <coughs> like, what did it feel like? You can obviously, you know, people have smartphones, they're intelligent, the money does not quite work, what's going on, and you start learning. And people like yourselves have been industrious and gone out and actually started Bitcoin mining. I wonder if you were still mining in 2017 or if they'd shut that down. And, you know, what did it feel like to live in an environment where this was happening around you?
1: I think that the the, um, the way I, I recall it nowadays is an ever-increasing trend of you having to deal um, uh, daily or weekly uh, more, more, more with like this, what is... At the start, it's not like a second job, but it eventually becomes a second job in your life. Which is your first job is what gets you um, your income, whatever your your income, your first uh, stream of of revenue, whatever. That it's mainly based on the local currency, and then you have a second job, which is getting rid of that, <laughs> getting rid. Getting rid of the, of the currency, which is essentially worthless, because you have the risk that um, you couldn't, you, you could never calculate or foresee when it was going to be the, that day that you saw the currency depreciate by like 30% or 50% overnight. Fuck. Yeah. You can it's never massive, foresee that. So, it. Yeah. Yeah. So you were always, the, the moment you received an income in Bolivares or oh. whatever you You were already dealing with uh, getting FX rid of those.
0: Essentially, yeah
1: getting rid of that as asap. Wow. Uh, so that's how it felt. I, I think um of course, there's like a, if we dive uh, more into detail of the aspects of it, it's like um uh, people people are starting to have rushier lives, right? like do uh, you you just see how people's quality of life keeps dropping? Mm. Uh, and people just like you would see within your own circles like people that are all of a sudden well not all of a sudden but as a result of everything they're not able to go out they're not mm. able to uh you know uh afford themselves to go out to uh restaurants over their weekend maybe it becomes only a monthly thing maybe mm. it even becomes a, a family thing as a more mm. like hey we can't afford this by ourselves or whatever individually, let's do it as a family, as a. So, so it's um, I think ultimately uh, at a philosophical level it makes you be a more humble person, uh, because you tend to value even more uh, whatever you have available or whatever you can allow yourself to have. Um, then more than talking more about the the trade aspects of how the economy starts changing is you also see an ever-increasing number of like informal businesses pop up mm. uh, because all of a sudden if wages are worthless and they're controlled, right, and capped by the government mm. and that's how the government also ran their, their social programs and their uh, the companies that they nationalized, right, mm. this mm. subsidized wages that just uh, artificially create, created this like unviable uh, businesses that would eventually blow up mm. all of them blew up today right um, so what would you do you become some sort of entrepreneur you mm. start cooking pizza at, at your home or you start doing burgers or you do delivery or whatever right um, and, and I think these people ultimately were uh, that first level of, of society that is, is in need that is eventually pushed all of these people dealt with cash, right? Until cash was essentially extremely worthless, mm. right? To, to the point that like you had to go four times a day to an ATM, right? Because of the withdrawal limits and, uh and how much that cash was valuable just to go to the bakery and buy like bread, you know wow. what I'm talking about? It's like, Wow. It's insane. Um so so it was for sure in 2017 where uh the digitalization of uh, transactions in Venezuela started happening. Mm. Money has money has to go, money has to become faster. You need uh you need faster ways to number one, receive whatever amount of money you need to receive, and number two, get rid of it. Uh and that's when you saw all of this informal uh, businesses or informal entrepreneurs however you want to call them mm. uh, in in dire need of like a digital bank account. yeah um, yeah when at the same time the government was introducing this like huge um, advertisement campaign for cryptocurrencies mm. uh, so yeah, so 2017 was for sure that hysteria, hysteria period uh, for for Bitcoin and altcoins whatever mm. uh, in the country
0: Wow and so do you still live in Venezuela or has your life uh, taken you somewhere different and um, how has that process been like and I assume you still have many family members still at home
1: I do still have family in Venezuela just like um, um, most of, of the people my age I'm mean, mm. in my, like my early 30s, Mm. Um, that that left the country, right? So, um, I think I think in my case, I was fortunate enough to get into Bitcoin at a very early time. Mm. uh that allowed me to continue con- continue building a sort of sort of more globally based view of the world and interest. uh it it certainly also allowed me to keep keep doing connections over the internet and have like. I don't know, uh a a frequent a frequent way to keep talking in English to people. Uh, mm. keep trying to keep trying to expand the vision. So um Bitcoin took me to many places while I still lived in Venezuela. Today I don't live in the country any longer. I'm currently based in Brazil. Um happily with my first daughter. <laughs> Congratulations. Um awesome. Thank you, J thank you. Um uh, and yeah, I think that part of the part of me. Uh, being based still in a country within Latin America it's still my interest of um, how I understood and I saw things develop around Bitcoin and the industry from this side of the world. Um, Because here, sometimes it's about the need, it's about the inflation, it's about Mm. the alternative, it's about Mm. uh, you don't have a stable form of currency, you don't have Mm. a stable form of bank account. Um, So it never became, and I think it's still not there, that narrative that we would see in other parts of the world, like in G7 countries, for example, which is like uh, an asset class, right? That it's mm. part of your portfolio. Mm. Uh, I tend to joke over Twitter, like, well, for you, it's like a part of your portfolio. For me, it's
0: like, let's well, my family. Wow. 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 Um, so- Oh, so many cool things to draw on there. First of all, I had my second daughter just five weeks ago, so um, congratulations, sir. Yeah, it's an exciting time. She's been a real handful, and my wife and I haven't slept much at all. But it's been a, it's <laughs> almost actually been the trigger where I resigned from my Fiat mining job, and I'm going to have a crack at this podcast full time. So it's been a, a wonderful yeah. couple of weeks in that sense, as hard as it has been. Um, but what, what I love that you're explaining to me. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, Bitcoin's part of my portfolio. And so, you know, yeah. I, my father died when I was young. I inherited some money. How do you look after it? So it's entrepreneurial in a sense. Like you've got a pot of money. What do you do with it? Like how do you survive? How does that actually, you know, inflation still existed 10 years ago, but it's not as bad as it is now, even in somewhere like the UK. And over the last two years, Bitcoin now like well and truly taken over basically everything in my portfolio. And I have just Bitcoin and cash. And it's the most amazing journey. And that's why I started the podcast. And what I particularly like about speaking to someone like yourself is um, this concept of product market fit and identifying problems. And when someone has a fucking big problem, that's a great opportunity to supply them with a new product of some form. And Bitcoin is getting used by people in places where they absolutely desperately need it. And so you get dickheads in the pub that I mean I'm in Australia these days, and they're like, "Wow, well, Bitcoin's a load of shit, isn't it?" They're like, "Mate, I've just had a chat with El Sultan Bitcoin, and he grew up in Venezuela. <laughs> Think about what that means to people like himself and his family." And you've just said it: Bitcoin saved my life and your families. I mean, it's it's an incredible, incredible story. Um, so let let's 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 vibe on that a little bit. So so why is that the case? You've you've explained very nicely that. The, the macro situation in Venezuela became so difficult that hyperinflation happened and you're stuck, you know, with a second job trying to just get rid of the, the local currency and whatever that means. So, um, how does it feel to have found another technology that actually has functioned as well as it does? And what has that done for other members of your family? So you're now, you know, with a daughter and living in Brazil and, and, and comfortable with that and, and teaching people about the, the need that people in Latin America genuinely have for this nascent form of money. How else has it affected other family members of yours? Can you share any details about them?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I think I was the first crazy one in my family to start thinking about, mm. uh, investment products. Um, Amen to
0: that. Everyone needs a crazy (laughs) guy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) For sure, man. Um, Yeah, I think it was, I was uh, the the one that started thinking about like structuring our portfolio for the family. Uh, uh, We have some money aside. Let's try to invest it. Uh, We were a family that was also affected in 2000, in the 2008 financial crisis. Mm. Uh, we lost most of our foreign savings, uh, to some banks in the U.S. Um, Shit. Which is why, yeah, which is why, like, at fourteen, fifteen years old, I was already asking myself this question of like, what it, what is money, and what are banks, and what actually happened here, and and what is the alternative for to, to try to like avoid this thing, um, from happening again, right, to your family. Mm. U- ultimately, you're you're being fueled by the. Uh, by the feeling of protection, uh, you want to protect. Um, I think that's a powerful thing, and I'm, I'm still, I'm still there, right? Like I'm still mm-hmm. just trying to protect our savings from whatever. Um, not any longer only in Minnesota, but globally. Um, yeah. So I, th- yeah. So I think um, my father was a small businessman in the country. Uh, mm-hmm. He used to have to deal with this, as we discussed this, like country, cl- country currency exchange. Uh, program that uh the the government enforced and so uh whenever he wanted to import something to then resell the goods locally um i was the one to help my father with it um and so um that's also what prompted me and 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 make me make me see at the time uh that immense value of like hey i i think i found uh, an an alternate way uh to make ourselves with um savings outside of the country pops Mm. right Mm -hmm. and so i started helping my pops at first exchange some of our small business revenues uh into bitcoin yeah and then eventually whatever was left of after we got comfortable and and like my family started after many talks and i think a couple of years with my father him seeing like how this Bitcoin thing was essentially not stopping and it had crashed. Mm. I mean, the 2014 crash is like, that was, like a, that was a shocking thing, but still you're open to new things because locally your currency is still even more volatile than Bitcoin. It's like, it's volatile, but it's only volatile to the downside. Uh, Bitcoin was volatile on both sides of things. Um, which for a Venezuelan, it, it already made you feel comfortable that it was still a better option than your local
0: currency. Uh, That's interesting. So so the Bitcoin volatility is often cited as one of the problems with it. Everyone's like, oh, it's too volatile. <laughs> Couldn't use it. But when your local currency is volatile to the downside and only the downside, then Bitcoin's volatility with the upside as well is already, you know, let's use it basically. Um that's so interesting. Okay. And can I ask, I'm intrigued. So it was a small family business that you guys were running. So what, what were you importing? Like what was the actual business?
1: My father is an architect. So he specialized himself in the lighting industry of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so he used to import like lighting stuff, like lighting bulbs or LED bulbs mm-hmm. um, and, lumina- and luminaires, uh, be it for like uh, external lighting or inter- internal offices lighting. Okay.
0: Interesting, um, yeah. and that's that's something that I always uh, like about these conversations is people's lens to Bitcoin is always unique. And had your father not had a business that involved some kind of importing, then you might not have understood the difference between a a foreign currency and your local currency. And it's only through that exposure that you started asking these questions. And you know, to echo your sentiment, two thousand eight was a difficult time globally and lots of things changed um and 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 value was just wiped out all over the place. my question at the moment is you know are we in a 2008-esque period right now and you know how bad is is the global economy going to get the fed continues to tighten and the expectation is the interest rates are only going to carry on going up so my feeling is that you know when did we see the first interest rates hike March of this year takes 12 to 18 months for this to kind of filter through on a macro level. So I think we could easily be heading into some kind of major recorrection the next kind of six months. What will that do to Bitcoin? We don't know. It's hovering around 20,000 US dollars at the moment, which is, you know, I think a great buy, um, but it could go down. But when your local currency is definitely going down, it's obviously the right option to to, to you know store your value in and save again. Um, wow, how interesting okay and so let's let's talk a little bit about your move to Brazil and one of the things I love to understand about people's decision making processes is why they go and do something like that. It's quite a major life decision to move a young family somewhere different. um Why did you decide to do that?
1: Well I think um, while I was living in Venezuela and chavez was was the president, I still came to Brazil uh, to visit my fiance at the time uh, my girlfriend at the time today mm. my wife mm. um so i got i got to come to brazil for the first time in 2014 um since then uh, i sometimes joke joke around telling my story uh when i meet people here in brazil and try to explain why cryptocurrencies and why bitcoin and yeah. why 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 <clears throat> it became a thing in in my country it's essentially like look When I visited for the first time your country back in 2014, one dollar was worth here around almost like three Brazilian herats. And one dollar at the time in my country was worth like 30 bolivarists of of that re-denominated Bolivar. After three denominations today, one dollar in in Venezuela, if you account for all of the 14 zeros that were removed from the currency, well, then multiply the exchange rate right now, which is like 9.4 by 14 zeros.
0: Uh, it's just gone. Uh, you, there is no value that, there. Yeah,
1: That's 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 trillions. You went from 30 to trillions. <laughs> uh, and in that same time... Wow. Uh, the, the the Brazilian real against the dollar went from almost three. It's currently hovering around five and six. Okay. Um. So it's like a 50% valuation against yeah. 99% wipeout.
0: Wow. Uh, wow. Right. It's
1: like the Venezuelan and Bolivar is essentially a rock pole. Uh <laughs> so, Wow.
0: And, and that's so, another great so, highlight, right? So, uh, you know, one of the reasons travel is such a, an amazing experience and in my lifetime anyway has always made me feel incredibly free is you gain so much perspective, you know, you get to leave where you grew up and you go and see how different people do things differently and culture is just varied all over the world. And if you hadn't gone through that process, it it doesn't highlight the problem that you were facing um, that Bitcoin so brilliantly solves. Okay, great. And so is there a, um, a lot of Bitcoin activity in Brazil?
1: I'd say, well, here, To be quite honest, uh, again, truth be told, here is a mixture of everything in that um, other than just Bitcoin, there's like this uh, big DeFi community. They're very Ethereans uh, Mm. over here in Brazil. Mm. Um, I think that that's just partly related to the fact that Brazil within South America functions as the mecca of financial markets uh, and the mecca of the VC industry as well as well mm-hmm. so there's like a combination of um ether is so vc based mm. at this point mm. that when you are in a country uh, within south america like brazil uh you assess like uh the number of startups um from from the fintech uh industry that have received funding as is the number of startups that have received the most amount of funding in South America over the past five years. Wow. So everything that is related to digital finance and digitalizing finance and making more accessible finance and investment or whatever for people in the region uh, gains a lot of popularity within the VC industry specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I th- so I think those are like the, the back-end factors of why there's such a mixture of and willingness to try – uh, different things when it comes to uh, to Bitcoin and digital assets, uh, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, my focus for sure remains still Bitcoin. Uh, okay. to be quite honest, compared to the scale, right? this is a two hundred and thirty seven million people country wow. uh, i would I would say that the Bitcoin community is still quite small. Mm. Uh, there's um. Well, there is for sure a bitcoin community i mean part of the there is i think one or two brazilians uh that contribute directly to bitcoin core uh okay. which you don't ha- which you don't have in countries like venezuela for example
0: mm. um interesting because so, so i bit, um yeah the where will i go with this we well, just I, I spoke recently with um uh a guy in india and um You know, shout out to Abby if he's listening and and the the Bitcoin only scene in India is growing, but in a country of one point something billion, it's still relatively small. Um, But what I find interesting here is what you've explained about life in in Venezuela is Bitcoin was the solution and nothing else. So why are you not, you know, part of this Ethereum, um, you know, VC backed scene and just highlight the major characteristic differences between the two? And for me, it's very, very obvious um, where my head's at and what I think is the best long term bet and frankly, the most important technology we could be working on. But I'd love to understand, like, what at a high level means that you're going to stick to Bitcoin and and not get involved into the Ethereum stuff?
1: I think that uh, ultimately what we're all trying to achieve here is that we're trying to create a new system. Mm. We're trying to create a new system around a form of money that is not controlled by governments so that you don't have a group of folks, um, whether you want to call them central bankers or billionaires or cantillionaires or whatever, mm. uh, <clears throat> that control the decisions of ultimately the lives of, of people globally. Mm. Uh, because he, either we like it or not <clears throat> that I have seen it firsthand that uh, how how having your life based in dollar terms uh instead of your local currency terms could have just been the most life-changing thing not only for you but for your family essentially um and that's and that's weird like people here crave for dollars there's like a natural and like an unconscious unconscious uh, thing at a societal societal a uh, society level that people just crave for dollars um so i th- I think that again um we're trying to build a new system that can't be controlled by a single a single group done and i just think that at a personal level i believe that anything else other than bitcoin falls to fulfill that promise mm. uh, because it, it does have some sort of structure uh, within a specific jurisdiction, or it's dependent on a specific website or uh a specific cloud provider, which can be the case with Ethereum right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I guess that coming from that early uh 2013 camp, um, Ethereum was still not not around. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there was uh there was few exchanges at the time. You had one of the most well known today. Kraken, for example, Kraken was born as a Bitcoin-only exchange. Mm. Uh, Kraken became the first exchange to list Ethereum, but that was after 2014, when it when it was born. So, mm. I think I was fortunate enough to not, um, yeah, to not, I think, be misguided by the noise that has mm. been created. Mm. There's an over 21,000 coin noise today that people have no, to deal with whenever yeah. whenever they get started, right? It's, it's one option against 21,000 options.
0: Mm. And that's where the Bitcoin-only focused content and, and education is so important. And, and it's very obvious when you start, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, actually, here's a good, a good analogy. Um, when you look at the stock market, what do you buy? Well, you're buying a share in a company. Okay. But is every share the same? Well, no, because every company is different right? Every company has a different type of product or a different type of service operating in a different country with a number of different risks, a number of different amounts of shares, a different management board, a whole different ecosystem of humans that make up the entity that is that company. Well, the cryptocurrency space is exactly the same in that they're all cryptocurrencies, yes, but they're all different. And so you have to understand the difference between them to really understand what you're looking at and for most people it's basically just an online gambling game and you know that's why these big exchanges are making great money because they lure you in and they offer bitcoin but actually they really want you buying a ton of altcoins and switching from altcoin to altcoin and no one really knows what they're doing there's some extremely seasoned veteran traders out there that are able to build up positions and rug pull when they want The way that the VC scene functions is so different to how Fiat VC actually functions. So if you have a VC fund, you have a bunch of limited partners, you've got specific things you're allowed to invest in, the fund has a certain duration. What you don't do, which is what Three Arrows Capital have got caught out doing, is basically raise some funds, pop it in USDC, find a good looking kind of developer team, give them a shit ton of USDC they create some slick marketing profile, they get it listed on an exchange, and then they sell the shit out of it through Telegram groups, Twitter, around what is now a global market, completely unregulated. Now, I'm not against regulation, but I don't believe it's necessary for someone to have a certain net worth to include them in an investment. So some of the the regulatory uh, r- um kind of moats that are created for stock investing. It's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Oh, because you're not wealthy enough. You can't buy this company. Fuck you. That should not exist as a, as a rule. But what they do is they obviously pump these tokens and people pile in thinking they're going to get mega rich. And then the initial insiders, who've actually got half of the tokens and circulations that they gave themselves before they started promoting it, they just sell them all. That isn't venture yeah. capital. In, in in some ways, VC has been tarnished by this venture capital should be about investing in brilliant entrepreneurs with game changing zero to one ideas. And that's what Bitcoin is. It is genuinely zero to one idea, but without interestingly a, an illiquid equity pool that you can kind of monopolize. So we can all share in the upside of Bitcoin by buying Bitcoin. It's crazy. So there's, there's lots of things to kind of talk about in that statement, but ultimately Bitcoin is different to everything else I've seen in the cryptocurrency space and it's because of the way it's designed and it requires some time and effort to actually look at why that's the case. And I think it's incredibly important and poignant that someone like yourself that's lived through a hyperinflation uses Bitcoin and other people can learn from that and that's really important to get across.
1: And I think and I think that as a, a segue uh, analogy to everything that you just discussed, there's also the... Um... I like to focus on infrastructure, right so i i like okay. to th- I like to think like, okay, so if this <laughs> is going to be the new the new global warehouse to, for powering global transactions um whatever that's going to need some infrastructure so uh, when you uh, when you're in your in your own bitcoin journey, whenever you want to start, I think like grasping uh a, having a better grasp a better sense of what's actually uh, how does the protocol work? Um, I think you ultimately at least want to install your first Bitcoin full node, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you can, I think, like self sovereignly at a minimum, contribute to the Bitcoin infrastructure. Not that it needs it in a sense, because it can fully function with uh, 45,000 plus Bitcoin full nodes that are currently sitting around the globe. Um but it's still, I think, part of every, every ultimate, I think, uh, um, person that is trying to achieve self-sovereignty or whatever, or that wants to contribute or understand how to contribute to Bitcoin infrastructure, you have to run your own uh, Bitcoin full node. So how this connects to uh, my background story, Jake, is basically, well, if you want to try to install an Ethereum full node, for example, you're going to need more than four terabytes uh, four terabytes of um available space, um, which not even not even a, a commercial SSD nowadays on Amazon has four terabytes. Mm. Uh, and at the time, with a crappy internet in an emerging market like Venezuela, it took me more than a month to download Bitcoin's blockchain. So you mm-hmm. know what I mean. So like, and 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 Bitcoin's blockchain is around like what five hundred gigabytes or, or or so, more yeah, or it's less.
0: Small, yeah. Uh,
1: you know, so it's like you still Ethereum's blockchain is still like ten x that of that of Bitcoin. So it would have taken me what like a year to uh, just just based on the consideration of the internet connection that I have, et cetera. But but then what are the costs for that that hardware? So it, it you ultimately continue continue pushing the can down the road, and you ultimately make it even more difficult for developers or whatever to build infrastructure sure Mm -hmm. there's like this this weird scalable um, I think attempts I think that weird attempts to scale you know Ethereum through like this layer twos or whatever that are being born but uh, when you do like what's called like a network network topology Mm -hmm. um, evaluation you see that there's a bunch of uh, full nodes and there's like a huge gap in the middle. And then you have this, what they call validators or whatever. Again, I don't want to dive too deep into it. Mm. uh, Cause I actually, I actually having, I actually haven't spent what I would believe um, the amount of time that I would need to actually make like a, uh, at a technical level, a strong argument, again, Ethereum infrastructure or whatever, Mm. even if we, we can discuss a general level POS against PO PO proof of work. Um, Mm. But, but I still think, again, I like to think about infrastructure as a, as a Bitcoiner from Venezuela with the, with the utilities that you have access to and the kind of internet service that you had access to at the time. Uh, And considering like, what is your purchasing power as an average Venezuelan, Do you actually have like the, you know, like enough savings to put aside a computer that is only going to be verifying um, some information that is actually not going to per se make you some additional revenue. Um, it'll help you to verify and, and not trust anybody, issue your own transactions, et cetera. It gives you functionality, but it doesn't give you an added an added revenue. So the consideration here is like, if we're actually going to build something that... It's going to power the, the new global financial system on it. You're you will you're going to want kids in Nigeria, as it's happening right now, being able to build on top of it and at a minimum, they're going to need a computer to run their own full node on it. Mm. Otherwise, they're going to have to get some sort of grant from a Amazon Web Services or whatever to try to run a node on the cloud. And it's still not the same. Um, i think you kind of get the sense of where i'm going please correct me if no I'm no
0: no it's 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 along the lines of what i was mentioning about the stock market and and looking under the hood and like what how's how are these things actually built and the very clear comparison if we had to make one between ethereum and bitcoin is the infrastructure is just completely different and ethereum seems to be centralizing over time and it doesn't allow for scrappy entrepreneurs with low budgets on a um you know in in random locations to to actually build on top of it and this recent move to proof of stake and it's been jumped on as being an environmental thing and it just it's all bullshit the whole thing like the fact that they can even change the characteristics of the money now like that that in itself should be a red light you know, we're trying to get away from that. That's the problem. Humans cannot stop themselves from digging their fat little fingers into the honey pot, and that has been mm-hmm. proven time and time again. Yeah. And really, when I started thinking about it, you know, I spent five years in the startup space and heavily coached through a number of kind of they were called talent investors, and they you know, you basically put a hundred people in a room. You get paid to be there. 50% are technical, 50% are non-technical, more commercial. And they're like, you've got 12 weeks to come up with a billion-dollar company idea. We might invest into 10% of the company for you know 150 US or something like that. And so we were all brainstorming these crazy ideas. There were some super smart people in there, and it was really awesome fun. Um, but they were telling you to focus on problems. And a a lot of these problems were like try and rebuild the next Google, the next Facebook, or some other large digital monopoly. And it's only consequent to those programs that I've ended up getting really into Bitcoin from more of my macro investing stuff I was doing. And you're like, hang on, money's a problem. Money's actually been a fucking massive problem for a very, very, very long time. And there's been all of these different forms of money that we've used, and they've all failed for a number of different reasons, even though they were put in place for a rational reason. And you know, the thing that Saifedean points out so well in the fiat standard is actually fiat currency makes sense because moving gold around the world is actually really quite difficult and expensive. And just it's much easier to move bits of paper. And that made sense at the time. But we've now reached the digital renaissance and we have a digital form of money that is completely out of the hands of anyone to meddle with and it just makes so much sense that this is what we should be building our future economy on in my opinion now everyone else can think whatever they want and go and do whatever they want but the, the the proof is there that this is a really solid foundation to build upon and that's what's so exciting about it and and meeting people like yourselves as much as it's only virtually like your story is incredibly powerful and I've spoken to people in Africa and I've spoken to people in Guatemala and I've spoken to people in other parts of Asia. And it just it's like, whoa, this is a global thing that people are are jumping onto. Why is that? And it's through these stories that you start to understand why. It's brilliant. Um, well, Sultan, we have a few more minutes left. So what I'd love to just um, jump onto is. I came across a tweet of yours from back in September and you said there's a plethora of Bitcoin companies and startups needing effective Bitcoin content marketing. Here's five free keyword research tools that can help you create better content. From a purely selfish perspective, I'm trying to build out this podcast and I've signed my first sponsor. I'm going to be looking for additional sponsors very soon and reach out to all my previous guests and see if they know anyone they might be able to introduce me to. But um, where do you see... Bitcoin education going and how can it kind of augment the the infrastructure build out essentially. So all of these entrepreneurs that are uh, perhaps more technically focused than myself that are capable of writing software to create uh, digital products or people who are engineers and they're able to understand energy and how to convert stranded energy assets into Bitcoin mining power. um, Where does the education part play into that and specifically the kind of content marketing stuff you were talking about?
1: I think that ultimately we've um you know we've been building on our own form of money so um in a very big sense this is kind of like a self-funded self-funded ecosystem um of sorts so i do i i would expect to see a continuation of like um education houses or or let's call it alternative academia if if we may Mm. uh Funded funded by Bitcoiners or Bitcoin companies or whatever, uh, to to continue teaching the proper uh, Bitcoin knowledge. I think, mm. um, sort of this like again, and that's and that's what we've been discovering over the years with like um, when we started exchanging um, thoughts around Austrian economics and that became a thing. All of that. And all of a sudden you have like this uh, the Mises Institute and so it's interested in talking about digital assets as well because like if you see if you assess what's being taught at like traditional academia and universities about Bitcoin it's not Bitcoin <laughs> it's no. dig- <laughs> it's digital assets and blockchain to, for the blockchain to power everything in the world and yada yada so I think the only way we're ultimately going to be able to fight against that misinformation is by cre- continuing to creating our own channels, mm-hmm. uh, and and own groups to to educate people, um, uh, which is like I think it's ultimately the right way to continue evangelizing because we got to continue evangelizing here, not taking into a religious. Of course. That's out.
0: what it is. That is what it is. I've had people be like, Jake, you, you've, you've like, you're obsessed, mate. What's wrong with you?
1: <laughs> yeah. I've had people like, hey, Alessandro, you, you should like open up a church, a Bitcoin church. Like, oh my God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can just see you in a kind of like, uh, 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 what would you even call it? A Bitcoin outfit of some form. You know, there's a lot of inspiration you could take from historical kind of clerical <laughs> figures, couldn't you, for that?
1: yeah i I think that um uh, the other the other piece that you asked about it's uh, content marketing so yes, yeah what I think is what I see happening is you know usually it's difficult to uh, I would say find a person that has this expertise that's like super tech savvy and then super marketing savvy. Mm-hmm. Um, unless it has unless this person has like a specific marketing background maybe within uh, the tech space worked like, uh, I don't know, like a big firm like a Google and did some sort of product marketing or growth marketing. Um, so I think that uh, what I see within the Bitcoin educator space is there's no doubt that they are rich and savvy in Bitcoin knowledge. What I see is basic things things that I've been learning at uh, uh, well, let that I've been working on it's focusing on marketing and letting it's like, uh, the miss, the miss, uh, the missing piece of knowing the best practices and expertise of uh, like how to rank, a blog, uh, a blog page on number as number one on Google. Mm. Right. Cause ultimately like say that you have a blogging strategy for Bitcoin, um, well, besides from a tweet that you might put out, put out there, it's like, how do you, how do you actually develop content that is, that is taken into into account how Google's algorithm actually reads a page and understands a page and ranks a page and says, well, this is a better page for, I don't know, whatever Bitcoin wallets, for example, or Bitcoin multi signature, uh. So there's a number of companies in in different parts of of the Bitcoin industry today that do a great job of that. Like, for example, Abra is very well at positioning themselves, um, uh, writing about custodial solutions like multi-signature of the sorts. So that's pretty cool. I think that how do we, what I see is like, how do we eventually, as Bitcoin educators, take that for ourselves and learn that and position our content, which is not for offering a specific service or a financial service, right? Mm-hmm. Or an altcoin or, or Bitcoin in the background to just eventually, to your point, offer you an umbrella of shitcoins. And so eventually you get lost in your journey. So uh, that's, that's the thing that I've been learning uh, over the past two years, I'd say. And it actually has me very excited. Because then after working and assessing like different, just having talks with other like crypto companies or Bitcoin companies in the space, seeing at their content, I know that there's a need for that, Mm. Uh, which actually makes sense, right? We're, We're in this part of the adoption curve. That is the early mass that will start coming together, right? So from the 100 or 200, 300 million that we might be today to the, one billion plus that we might be in a couple yeah, it's of years. Ten x,
0: isn't it? It's a massive opportunity. Yeah, well,
1: it is. It is. So, um, it's I think about it's, being I smarter think
0: it's... somehow. Though you're right. So it's like take take some knowledge out of the technology space and reapply it to Bitcoin only education. You're absolutely right. I had um Brandon Quitten on the podcast at one stage, and Brandon works as the head of communications for Swan, and he wrote that brilliant article about um uh fungi being like bitcoin and how it was like a decentralized network and he wrote it when he was in bali it's a great story go back and listen to it guys if you haven't anyone listening out there um but he basically he got really good at content marketing on, on email and started doing um uh part-time work for swan and ended up in a full-time role there and and they're obviously the leading probably bitcoin only brand that i know of um and you're right like there's a that's basically a a heavy marketing front end for a fairly simple digital product, in my opinion. So you could do very similar things for other brands using that same mechanism that Swan have developed, essentially. And and this is really what you're discussing. Um, Yeah, it's awesome. I'm very excited to see how it might develop. Well, the Sultan of Bitcoin, I'm so glad you joined me today. Uh, Could you let people know where they can get in touch with you if they're intrigued to reach out?
1: Oh for sure. Best way is to follow El Sultan Bitcoin on Twitter. That's at EL Sultan Bitcoin.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you, Jake. Uh,
1: looking forward to see you in the next one, I think.
0: Thank you. Well done, friends. You made it to the end of the episode. I couldn't be more grateful for you sharing this time with me and putting your energy into this project. If you like what you hear please first and foremost, share it with your friends and family. Getting the message out to those around us, nearest and dearest, I think is one of the most important things we can possibly do. On top of that, Wherever you listen to this, please rate, subscribe, share, etc. I'd really appreciate the support there as I try and build out this podcast. And lastly, I'm looking to build a network of startups and founders in this space. So if you know anyone that's interested in building a business and is looking for investment, please send them in my direction. Thank you so much, guys. You've been listening to Bitcoin with